Thank you. Please have a seat. Let me say good morning again if you are a first-time visitor and have slipped in since the words of introduction at the beginning of the service. Let me say to you, welcome. Uh, we are uh, collectively gathered here. We are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We've come to that portion of the service where we look at God's Word together. We do this uh, because we believe that God is the creator of everyone and everything. We believe that this creating God has not only acted, but has also spoken about his actions, telling us who he is, telling us what he's like, what he's done, uh, why he's done it, what some of his future plans are, and what any and all of that has to do with us. And all of these revelations have been recorded and preserved for us in the Bible, the scriptures, and so we study the scriptures and through them come to know our creator and ourselves and our world better. Now the portion of the Bible we've been looking at this year is the book of Acts found in the New Testament right after the book of John. John uh, is one of the four biographies about Jesus which are titled Gospels because they are, as that word indicates, they are good news about what God has done through Jesus Christ to bring forgiveness of sins to all those that are his. Following those Gospels and following John in particular, the book of Acts records the very early establishment and growth and development of the church that was birthed by the Gospel. And so it's sort of the history book of the New Testament, if you will. Uh, one writer named Keller summarizes the unfolding of Acts in this manner. He says this, he says, Luke has been outlining how the gospel has been flowing and progressing according to the pattern Jesus laid down in Acts 1.8. There he directed the apostles to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 2 to 6, we saw the gospel spreading like lightning to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, and that was the first stage. Then Acts 7 to 9, we saw the gospel begin breaking through both human cultures and the disciples' expectations. First, through the deacon evangelists, Stephen, by his theology and death, and Philip, by his mission to Samaria, we saw the gospel break out of Jerusalem into its first new cultures, the Samaritans and the Ethiopian. And then Acts 10 and 12, through the conversion of Cornelius and the new church in Antioch, we saw the gospel show its power, not only to enter into every culture and every class, but to also unite Christians with a bond deeper than any human distinction. And really for the first time, the world was seeing a religion that was truly uh, supernatural and transcultural. To become a Christian, a Greek does not have to become a Jew. A plebeian does not have to become a patrician or vice versa. For Christianity is not the product of national and cultural consciousness. It is the shaper of consciousness. Acts 7 to 12 then was the second stage in which the gospel spread across all cultures. And so we read at the end of this period, but the word of God continued to increase and spread in Acts 12 verse 24. That's Keller's summary thus far, and I think it's a good one. Uh, and now that the gospel has shown itself to be transcultural, as Keller said, 
the stage is set for the Gentile mission to go forward in earnest. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in Acts 13. And I should say that this is going to be the continuing storyline for the rest of the book of Acts. The spread of the gospel mission to the rest of the world. Now in a moment after we pray and read the passage, we're going to take a little bit of time to start looking at Acts 13, focusing on the first four verses. And then after taking a look at that, I want to hit the pause button for a moment to say uh, just a few things about one of the issues raised by this passage, and that is the issue of guidance, how God has guided people and how he guides his people today. The fact is the subject of guidance is fairly involved, and so we cannot hope to fully or even partially unpack that idea in any sort of sufficient sense this morning. However, there are a few things I would like to say that should give us all something to think about and which I hope will whet your appetite for a further exploration of the matter. And along those lines, uh, while the details have not been fully worked out yet, I'm hoping that perhaps this fall we're going to use one of our Sunday school classes to explore this subject of guidance and the will of God in a little bit more depth. So that's a little mini commercial there. With that being said, let's pause for a moment to pray and listen to this passage And then we'll dig in. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Redeemer and our friend. And we thank you in anticipation of your continuing kindness for helping us now to understand these words which you have authored and preserved and the truths that they convey, especially in this area of how you guide your people. We ask at least these things in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. Please listen now as I read Acts 13, uh, 1 to 4. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now if you remember from some of our previous studies, and at the very end of chapter 11... The Gentile church in Antioch, right? The Gentile church, as evidence of the reality of their response to the gospel, had determined that they were going to help out their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, and, um, which is huge. And so you've got the Gentiles there reaching out to the Jews who rejected them for so long. The Jerusalem church, as you may recall, was struggling at that time. There was this big famine going on. And so the Christians in Antioch collected some funds and probably a lot of other things. And then uh, Barnabas and Saul, who who become Paul, personally delivered what was collected to the church in Jerusalem. We then heard, there's kind of a a parenthesis at that point. They're delivering these gifts to to Jerusalem. And then we hear in chapter 12 about some things going on back there with Herod and Peter and James. That's what we looked at last week. And it's kind of a... Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem moment in the scriptures. And at the end of that section, verse 25, chapter 12, returns to the story of Barnabas and Saul, and we, who've now completed the delivery of these gifts, uh, and, and they've also picked up a traveling companion 
in the person of John Mark, and uh, who will play an important role later on. And then they've returned to Antioch, which brings us where we are to, today. So here we are, chapter 13. Luke starts out by telling us a little bit about what's likely, this, this group that he describes here is likely the leadership of the church in Antioch, which consisted of a group of prophets and teachers. Uh, Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail about this, but I think we can safely say that all of them were involved in some kind of leadership and teaching, with some of them also engaging from time to time in some form of spirit-inspired utterance, which we'll say more about at a later point in this series. But at this point, we simply note that these prophets and teachers are likely serving together in a leadership capacity for the Antiochian Christians. And they appear to be a rather mixed group from Cyprus, from North Africa, from Tarsus. And then there's this guy named Menaean, who apparently was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which is Herod Antipas, we heard about last week. And it was probably Luke's source for inside information about Herod's court. Luke seems to know a lot about Herod's court. This is probably his source, says John Stott. We're then told that these leaders were worshiping the Lord and fasting together, along with the rest of the believers, no doubt. So they're gathered as a community of believers, as we are, and they're focused on the Lord, giving Him honor and praise, but there was something else going on. The passage says uh, they were fasting, or had been fasting and worshiping. Now that's significant, I think, because... um, Without going into a lot of detail, one of the purposes of fasting is that the person engaged in it might be especially uh, dialed in to spiritual things, spiritual realities. Uh, Another way to say it is fasting kind of kicks everything up a notch, so to speak, and was often entered into on those occasions that were especially significant or weighty. At any rate, the fact that the believers in Antioch were gathered together in worship and were fasting in the midst of it again suggests that this was an especially uh, important time for them, a focused time uh, for them. And uh, they were really tuned in. They were really engaged and they were giving their best attentions to God. And so it's not you know, terribly surprising to discover that in the midst of that kind of context uh, that the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called. And we can't say for certain whether the Spirit audibly spoke to them all, sort of, you know, in mass, or whether the leadership um, moved by the Spirit came to a sudden and common conviction or impression that they were to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work God had. We simply don't know. However, it, uh, however it happened, though, it is clear that the Spirit did speak in the church, and especially its leadership heard, and then acted on it to set these men apart. Notably, they did that after further fasting and praying. And equally notable is the fact that while it is the leadership of the local church that sets Paul and Barnabas apart to this ministry through the laying on of hands, uh, as verse 3 indicates, Verse 4 comes right behind and says that this action of being sent off by the leaders, it describes it as being sent out by the Holy Spirit. That is, God's Spirit is working to send them, but He is doing it through the human agency of the church's leadership. Something to think about there. As one commentator has noted, with this action of sending out Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, as we'll see later, we see something new taking place. In, uh, in the book of Acts. Up till now, the gospel mission has been driven by the Jerusalem church. 
with these events in Antioch, way to the north of Jerusalem, though, we see another church now become a center of activity for the gospel mission. An initiator of mission work such that Jerusalem now and Antioch uh, are both a Jewish and a Gentile church. They're both actively working to, uh, to expand the kingdom mission together. And this kind of multi-site model that, uh, that we see here is going to be expanded further as we move along in the book of Acts. Now next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up with this reading from Acts 13 and see some of the events that took place as Paul and Barnabas and John Mark traveled to Cyprus, which was Barney's hometown. However, for the remainder of our time this morning, as I in- in- indicated in the introduction, and because it is a brief passage, uh, I do want to use the opportunity created by that to say some things about this issue that's raised here, and that is the issue of guidance. Um, doing so, I want to acknowledge on the front end my gratitude for and dependence upon the work of Philip Jensen and Tony Payne in a very excellent book called Guidance and the Voice of God. Very, very helpful. If we do a study here, we'll probably lean on that. Now, the motivation for this side road, which really is more of a highlight than a detour, I think is uh, seen there in verse 2, which reads, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, you may or may not have picked up on this, but as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we have seen uh, a number of places now where God has clearly provided guidance directly and indirectly to his people. Acts 1, 10 to 11. Jesus ascends to heaven. After he ascends to heaven, two men who are angels appear to explain to the disciples what has happened and to tell them basically to not waste any more time standing there wondering what happened. Acts 1, 24 to 26. The disciples are trying to find a replacement for Judas among the twelve. They narrow it down to two guys, Barsabas and Matthias, and instead of putting the matter to a vote, they pray to God and they ask God to pick. And then they go on to show that they expect God not only to pick, but to do so by means of casting lots, like drawing straws. And so they prayed and they used this very human agency for decision making that seems random on the surface, but which actually shows their confidence that God really can, as the scriptures say, cause the lot to fall wherever he wants it to. So they take that to heart and they cast lots and choose Matthias. Acts 8.26, Philip is told directly by an angel of the Lord to go to the south and then he's uh, given a second set of instructions to approach a particular chariot that was coming by in order that he might eventually share the gospel with the Ethiopian man who was in the chariot. And later he's physically, he's bodily transported to another place, uh, which is, that's some serious guidance right there. Um, God picks you up and puts you somewhere else. In Acts 9, Jesus himself confronts Saul, who became Paul, and causes him to be temporarily blind in kind of a, a negative guidance, you might say. And then in conjunction with that, one of the disciples named Ananias is told by God in a vision to go looking for Saul and be used by God to restore his sight. There's other examples, but the point is, throughout this letter, this book, as we've been reading it, uh, we've seen illustrations of both direct and indirect guidance by God. We've seen angels speak, uh, Jesus speak, God himself speak. Further, God's guidance has assumed the form of direct statements and visions and even the casting of lots. And mixed in this, we've seen plenty of examples of God's people just getting up 
in the morning, making decisions to do this or that, and then following through with them, and seeing God in and through those day-to-day choices as well. So all these things appear side by side in Acts, direct guidance, indirect guidance, ordinary decision-making. So over against that kind of backdrop, question is, what are we to think about this matter of guidance? It's all well and good to see how God has guided these apostles back in the day, but what should we expect from God in our own day? As we already stated in introduction, this issue is it's a big one. So anything said this morning might feel a little bit like of a tease on the subject. I don't intend it to be that. I want it to be more helpful than that. Um, there are some things, important things we can say, even if we can't say them exhaustively. Hopefully it will get you thinking, and we can pick it up later. With that as an explanation, then, let's just take a few minutes to consider uh, two sets of things. Firstly, four characteristics about God that are crucial for understanding the matter of guidance. The first one is this, and it should come as no surprise to hear this. We're a Presbyterian church after all. But our God is completely sovereign. He's completely sovereign. He's more powerful than anyone or anything. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. The second truth is related. Not only is God all-powerful, he's also all-knowing. As Romans 11 reminds us, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? The answer is no one. God's knowledge and his understanding are perfect. And they're exhaustive. And they're infinite. Third truth is that our God is a planning God. Um, Isaiah records God's own self-description in this regard, chapter 46. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times to things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, says God. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. As uh, you know, his God's purposes are certain and sure, as Sproul puts it, um, there's not a single maverick molecule in the entire universe. Now, taken together, these three, those just those three traits or characteristics about God, you know, that He's all powerful, He's all knowing, and that He's a planning God. Those traits are crucial for how we think about the subject of guidance. You know, when you and I make plans, we have no certainty. We only have hopes. Because our plans can and often are thrown off by things that happen outside of our control. Or because our knowledge of things is limited and flawed, right? We don't have complete control. We don't have complete knowledge. God does not have either one of those problems. So, there's nothing outside of His control. There's no knowledge He does not possess. And so when God makes a plan... It's as good as done. When God purposes to do something, it always works out exactly as he has planned it. He he does not have, nor will ever need, a plan B. 
to these three characteristics, there's a fourth one that we need to keep in mind, though. Not only is God all-powerful and all-knowing and a planner, but he is also, he's a good shepherd who loves his sheep. The very familiar Psalm 23 in the Old Testament, John 10, 1 to 18 in the New Testament, clearly display this aspect of God's character, which, when you think about it, is a deeply comforting thought. I mean, think about it. If someone as powerful and all-knowing as God If someone that powerful and all-knowing, if he was not inherently good, but inherently evil, if he was not inherently loving, but hateful, if God was like that, then he would be an unimaginable monster. If he was like that, we would have great reasons to doubt and question his guiding and leading, but he isn't like that. Our God is powerful and all-knowing and purposeful, and, and he is good. And he intends good for his people because he loves them. Enough to lay down his life for them as any good shepherd would do. When we think about all that as it pertains to the area of God's guidance, it ought to be a huge source of relief if we would only remember it. Because it means we can trust that when God gives us guidance, when he instructs us in in which way to go or how we should live or what we should seek after or what we should flee, When he guides us in those ways, we can be absolutely certain he knows what he's talking about and that a better way does not exist. A better way does not exist. Further, when we look at how things play out in our lives, which is kind of the the behind-the-scenes aspect of God's guidance, as Jensen puts it, but when we look at those things, we can know that while all things in themselves are not good, All things work together for good for those that love God and are called by Him, as Paul says in Romans 8. More could be said, but but just those four things, right? God's power, His knowledge, His planning, and His good shepherding. Those things all by themselves are enough to show us that the very character of God, tells us we ought to expect that a God that has those qualities would guide his people and that he would do so flawlessly and lovingly and thoughtfully. We can trust the guidance he gives because of who and how he is. You know, often when people struggle, when I struggle with the way that God is leading in the particular path that he has us on, and I think this is true for all of us, but most of the time those struggles, I think, can be traced to, at least in part, to a failure to believe one of those four characteristics about God. Sometimes we reject his guidance because we doubt his power. We, we, uh, we believe that some things really are too hard for him. He can't do them or he won't do them or both. At other times we reject God's guidance because we don't think he really knows what things are like for us. We don't think he really knows how things feel to us. Uh, we, we doubt that he really understands the situation we're in as well as we understand it. We think we know better than him. We think we would handle things better than him if we were just given half the chance. At other times, we doubt his love and generosity toward us. We don't think of him as a good shepherd who has our best interest at heart, but as a distant calculating, self-interested deity who easily discards and tramples us in our hearts and our hopes underfoot. 
I mean, wasn't that exactly the strategy used on Eve by the serpent in the garden to get her to question God's goodness and generosity? And she did question it. And so she rejected God's guidance and disaster resulted. But it started with questioning the goodness and generosity of God. Along with remembering four characteristics about God, and there are plenty of other characteristics, but along with that, I want to draw your attention briefly to four passages of Scripture, among many, of course, but four that I would mention this morning that I believe are among the most important for thinking about this matter of guidance. I'll say the most about the first passage, and briefly mention uh, the, the other three. So you can explore them on your own. But the first and certainly um, one of the most significant passages, I think, uh, in all Scripture with regard to this matter of guidance, particularly for Christians in our day, is found in Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. There are a few things to see in these verses. Firstly, they make it clear that with the coming of Christ, there was a decisive shift in how God went about speaking to us. That is, in how God went about revealing himself. There's a before and after here. Previously, God spoke to us in a great variety of ways, including Burning bushes, pillars of fire, writings on walls, and even a donkey, for heaven's sake. And through various prophets. But now, he is doing it in a new and different way. And that new and similar way is by his son. Hebrews is telling us, and the history of God's people shows us, that a significant shift has taken place with the coming of Jesus. Secondly, the writer Peter indicates that in making this shift, We've transitioned into a period of time known as the last days. Which means a lot of things. But it at least means this. There isn't going to be another era after this one. There isn't going to be a new phase of God's self-revelation after this. This one is it. We're in the ultimate phase. Jesus is God's final and sufficient word. And he's not going to say it any better or any more clearly than he already has in Jesus. We don't need supplements or additions or upgrades. A point that is lost on many. And just as a pattern with the Old Testament era, so it was with the New Testament era. You know, in the Old Testament era, what we see where God spoke and he acted in various ways, and then subsequent to those words in those events, there came a time, this inscripturation process, right? Where God's acts and words, as mediated through the prophets, were then reduced to writing. And so the history of what God had done, beginning with creation and right through uh, to the establishment of his covenant with Abraham, and then the growth and expansion of a nation and its rise and fall, all those things were recorded, and that along with that, the songs that sustained them and by which they worshipped were included, and the wisdom that guided them, and the many warnings and pronouncements of judgment that came to them before, during, and after the exile, all of those things were reduced to writing, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit became the collective canon of what we know as the Old Testament. And please note, 
Jesus' own attitude toward and use of the Old Testament throughout his ministry confirms that understanding of the scripture process. Well, that same pattern of God's speech and acts followed by this inscripturation process, it's repeated with the coming of Christ. God reveals himself more clearly and fully than he ever has before in Jesus, and this too is followed by a spirit-inspired inscripturation process that resulted ultimately in this collection of books that we know as the New Testament, which leads us to the next passage that in my view is centrally important with regard to this matter of guidance, and it goes along with what I've just been saying. John 14 15 to 26. John 14, 15 to 26. I'm not going to read the whole passage right now, but basically Jesus, and you know this passage, right? Jesus is talking to his disciples about his imminent departure. He's trying to reassure them that even after he goes, they're still going to be okay. They're going to be all right. And the reason he gives for them being all right is that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them and to be in them. And that's one reason. But... He's also sending the Spirit to do something else. In the John 14 passage, Jesus talks a lot about keeping his commandments. He talks about, uh, he says, whoever loves him will keep his word. He says those things repeatedly in that John 14 passage. But of course, here's the thing. He talks about keeping his commandments, keeping his word. Nothing has been written down yet about Jesus when he says these things. So how are these disciples, and more significantly, how are all the disciples that come after them going to even know his words, much less keep them? And the answer is alluded to, I think, in verses 25 to 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And here we have Jesus himself referencing the work of the Spirit that will help his followers to remember what he said and done. And then some of those followers on the inspiration of the Spirit will write these things down. That is, they'll engage in this inscripturation process. And I think that's what we see here in John 14. I see, and there's an echo of it in John 16, uh, verses 12 to 15. And there's a confirmation of it that this is the apostles' own understanding of what was going on, even if happening if you see Peter's reference to Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3, 14 to 16. Very interesting thing that Peter says there. Basically, he recognizes Paul's letters as scripture. So much more could be said and needs to be said, but please, um, I know that's kind of detailed, but please don't miss the significance of this, right? Because Hebrews is telling us that God in the past revealed himself one way, but now in this last phase of Revelation, he's doing it in a new and a different and better way through his son. And then John's gospel is telling us that one of the jobs, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to make sure that God's revelation of himself in Jesus is not forgotten or missed. The Holy Spirit's role is to make sure that God's clearest and best speech that he ever made, which was his son, It's not lost, but it remains and it's preserved for his disciples in every age. So the scriptures of the New Testament are ours, which tells us something about the priority that we ought to place on them and the weight that we should give to them. I think in a day and age when people seem all too quick to seek after other forms of guidance, 
that are at best ambiguous and at worst unbiblical. But in a day and age like ours, we need to think seriously about what God has provided for us in and through Jesus and in the scriptures that attest to them. It's like a person deciding that they want to know all they can about stars. And then they decide that the object of their study to learn about stars will be Alpha Centauri, which is like, you know, insanely far away. It's this little speck of light in the sky. And then someone points out to this person one day, hey, you know, the sun actually is a star. And it's closer, and you could learn so much more about stars by studying it. To reject God's clearest revelation and guidance of himself for more obscure forms of guidance would be like wanting to know about stars, but rejecting right from the beginning that the study of the sun might be a good possibility. And the sun, in cosmological terms, is just down the street. God has drawn near, and he has spoken more clearly than ever before in and through his son Jesus and through the spirit. And God has preserved the record of that. And, and, uh, and the kingdom work and the mission that grew up around it. And we are crazy. Like we're simply crazy to not run there first when it comes to this matter of seeking guidance and to not see the sufficiency of God's provision in that. The third passage, again among many, but also one that I think that is crucial for this whole matter of guidance is Matthew 6, 25 to 34. It's inside the Sermon on the Mount, which is familiar to many Christians. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I think you're familiar with a lot of it. It's where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's telling them not to be anxious about their lives and the details of their lives, such as food and drink and clothing. He reminds them how God cares for his creation, including the birds and the flowers. And he asks them how much more concerned God will be with them. And so instead of letting worldly concerns have first place in your daily considerations and emotions, Jesus tells his disciples to invest their physical and emotional time and energies in another direction. Seeking God's kingdom, which means looking for ways to be involved in what God is doing here. And seeking God's righteousness, which means to be concerned with rightly relating to God. Living in a way that shows your glad submission to his rule and reign in your life. In other words, God's clear guidance to all of his people regardless of the details of their life and circumstances, is this. To seek his kingdom and his righteousness as a matter of first priority. When we do this, Jesus says, all these things, all these other things that he's been talking about there, will be added to you. Not in a sense that we're just going to magically or automatically have everything we want. But as Piper notes... What Jesus is saying is that when we make God's kingdom and God's righteousness a priority, that we can be assured that God will give us all that we need, every basic necessity of life, but we'll be given everything we need to engage fully in that mission of seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek that and all these other things that you need to do that will be given to you. It's not a blank check. It's, I'm going to give you everything you need to do what I've asked you to do. And that's the point, you see, because when we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first, our needs list looks and feels very different. And I think it's a lot smaller 
than when we're putting our own kingdoms first and his kingdom last. This passage, in my opinion, has huge implications for the matter of guidance because there's so many things that often preoccupy us in terms of seeking God's guidance and which, were we seeking first his kingdom and righteousness, might not seem nearly as pressing or crucial to us as they often do. The last verse, very quickly, that I think has huge significance. When it comes to this matter of guidance, Romans 8, 28 to 29, we already heard part of this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know, there is in some Christian circles a great deal of talk about destiny. That is what God's particular future might be for this or that person. And people seem to have uh, talk with more or less certainty about these things. But in Romans 8.29, we have a crystal clear statement about what God's destiny is for every believer. Every single Christian in his or her future has this reality. Being perfectly and completely conformed to the image of God's Son. Becoming like Jesus. Thinking like he thought. Having the same desires as he had. Living as he lived, relating as he related, loving as he loved, and serving as he served. That is the sure and certain future for all those that belong to him. And whatever else we might think or say or feel or wonder about our future, we ought to spend some time letting that thought right, of our being conformed to Jesus' image, let that thought marinate in our minds. That reality has huge implications for how we understand the matter of guidance. Because it means that whatever happens to us and whatever God asks of us in terms of obedience, all of those things have a common purpose. And it is to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. So God previously revealed himself in various ways. In these last days he's done so most clearly with his son. The Spirit has made sure that the church has permanent access to this. In terms of how we relate to God, our priority is His kingdom and righteousness. In terms of how He relates to us, His priority is that we are conformed to the image of His Son. A lot more could be said, but I think a lot of issues about guidance could be sorted out if we would wrap our heads just around those realities. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are a powerful and wise, purposeful, shepherding, good God. The problem is that we struggle to believe it when we most need to believe it. So we ask you to forgive us. Show us how to repent of those patterns of disbelief and turn again to new patterns of believing and trusting that the God who sent his son to die for us surely has our best interests at heart and teach us to trust you beyond what we can see and feel. Teach us to believe you and believe you first. Father, um, 
We want to thank you in advance for the ways that you're going to do this, both in our lives now and the way you're going to finish that work. It won't be done here, but it will certainly be done. And we're very grateful for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. For his sake, amen. We'll now take up an offering for those that want to support this church or uh, various ministries that we support together as a church.